Let me begin with something. I was born at the beginning of the Second World War and um, in Germany. And every time I'm there, as now, I'm reminded of that time of, of utter confusion, destruction, and uncertainty. And um, my feeling is that it left me, like many in my generation, sort of abandoned. I'm now following a word, a phrase from a great philosopher, um, Friedrich Nietzsche, from my country, who once said, our only virtue is honesty. I have mentioned this here before, and I follow this. I think it's, it's possibly not the only one, but for me, it's the first. It is to say not to also not conceal one's weaknesses. So my, one of my weaknesses in this case is I am very challenged by giving Dharma talks. I think this is my third or fourth. Uh, I feel very uncertain about what to do, what to say, what you might expect, in what way I could be helpful, in what way I could just be troubling the waters. Um, this has to do with, let's say, um, uh, I'm not a scholar of Buddhism. There are other people, I know people, a couple of people here who know much more about the historical writings of Buddhism. I, as an academic, I've been a scholar of Western philosophy and uh, social studies, and uh, the emphasis is on very different topics. So I wonder, as I also read some things about Buddhism, but usually in relation to something which I share with an old friend who is um, a very prominent therapist in Germany. We, it's usually between therapy and Buddhism. It's not religiously oriented. So I, if there is religious Buddhism, I cannot speak from that tradition. I understand the forms that we have here in the practice, which I value, but um, I don't know how, how far one can pull religion and Buddhism apart. To me, Modern philosophy has been largely extremely critical of any kind of religion. In Europe, of course, they were totally ignorant of Buddhism, but they didn't even mention it when they, apart from some. But philosophy since the 18th century has been radically critical of Western religions, of Christianity, Less so Judaism, although many Jewish thinkers participated in this movement, but their own tradition, they really never were very critical of it. And it seemed to have more, more open than, than, the, uh, than the Christian ones. If you want to sense a difference, for example, anyone, I remember being in Peru, in Lima once, one of the last places where there is a hall of the Inquisition. That is the, the Catholic persecution of all those who were treated as a danger to the true faith. It was quite shocking. It was a room like this, big. It was totally decked out in black. There was a huge cross in front and there were desks. And you could see that the judges who would condemn people to be burned on a pyre in fire uh, would be sitting there and ju judging. And this existed till 1830. So, when I think of religion, I think of that. 
And anything that takes me as far away as possible from that is preferable. So, because now, I've never found anything like that in Buddhism, but hold your breath for a moment. Uh, we do live in difficult times, and, the, and I've never heard this, I will say this right away about Korean Buddhism, but you will have read about Myanmar and the persecution of the Yohani people. It is, there, I have seen a text by a Buddhist leader from Myanmar, which was an incitement to genocide. It was a very, something similar happened in Sri Lanka before that, when there was the conflict and the Tamil population in the north. Uh, I remember that someone who named the founder of this temple referred to it as ethnic Buddhism. Perhaps that's a good way, where, where it takes that form. No one, no religion, no philosophy escapes entering into the wrong constellations, the wrong connections. So my conclusion from that is that we have to find our own way. And I, this takes me back to the beginnings of my participation in this temple, which has, it goes back some decades when it was on, you remember, the, in Green Street. <laughs> Green Street, south of Queen Street, and some of the, and a few group of people had began with this practice. And um, I came to it because I saw a drawing I saw a drawing in the university somewhere, the University of Toronto somewhere, a drawing of a person sitting, and it was one of these classical Zen drawings, like one line, and someone's in sitting meditation. It struck me as extremely beautiful in its simplicity. And now I know, and you will know, about the famous practice of um, drawing a circle in one stroke. And there is one case that I've seen of someone doing it I think in the Japanese tradition, on, on, a, on paper almost as big as this carpet, and doing it in, without stopping, with like drawing the circle, a closed circle, a perfect circle. Now, I, it's beyond me how one could do that, but I do know it takes enormous collectedness rather than, say, concentration. Concentration is much more from within, a kind of collectedness and presence that allows you to be doing something, a movement like that. And I think some people can do it, for, for example, in, in dance. But uh, and, uh, this, this was so impressive, I thought, this is, to me, what something other than whatever, I, if it's religion, it has nothing to do with any of the kinds that I know. And um, there's no, it's not by way of much talk and indoctrination and teaching people what to believe and this and that and many distinctions and so on. And uh, um, then I, beginning in the practice, I would come and go and come and go. Um, it was, um, uh, I made a decision. I didn't want to have an intellectual approach to this. This is why I've never really studied the Buddhist scriptures <laughs> too much. Because it seemed to me, for one thing, I was trained to have to know the languages, like in philosophy, I don't know Greek, in, in, in Germany, certainly, I don't know Greek and Latin. Um, but before you could think of modern philosophy, in fact, there would be professors coming in and opening a text from Plato and not even have a translation 
I mean, if you hadn't read it beforehand in Greek with a translation, which I had to do because my Greek wasn't that good, uh, if you didn't do that, then you were lost. You couldn't even follow the lecture. So, um, so first thing would be, for example, know a language. And I know the, the scholars I read and some of us here who read texts like someone I read, Steve Batchelor, for example, obviously knows a lot of, of, of the old, knows Tibetan and knows Korean, I think, even. And uh, so I thought, well, for to be a really good Buddhist scholar, I would have to learn those languages. So that keeps me from it. So what is then the approach that one can take, that most of us can take to learn? There is a very good hint by a prominent contemporary philosopher, now unfortunately dead for 20 years, died 20 years ago, Jacques Derrida in France, who said one, that his way, and he's very prominent also as interpreter of the classics, he said, you read them from the margins. You read them from those texts that they think are not important. And there you get clues as to what they really want to say. Because there they are least guarded. He has also been a, a, a gone through psychoanalysis, so in part it is a kind of method that already since Freud uh, we have known of, of kind of the things that come out from people that are not what they put most of their emphasis on, but the kinds of things that are expressed when one is just not all that concerned, not all that, let's say, focused on one's on making an impression. And I thought, well, somehow maybe I learned something from that. And I have to put this together with something else, um, the consciousness of modernity. A consciousness of, and this is such a, a big topic, I think, in our times when many traditional forms of, of teaching, religion and otherwise, are in question. And I mean, just think of the formidable impact that fundamentalist Christianity has on this continent and also now in South America, which is a total perversion of the original biblical uh, meanings and, 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 and ignores the historical research. For example, the fact that the evangelists did not know Jesus. Jesus was not a person they knew. The texts were written about a hundred years after um, the man who, who was called Jesus died and was uh, spoken in the Jewish prophet in the, the Jewish tradition. And Steve Batchelor expands this and says this historical critical method should apply also to Buddhist studies. And the way he puts it is, he hardly ever uses the term Buddha, he says Gotama. There's a human being who taught certain things. And then in some of these traditions, he was elevated to a kind of divine status, and others he is treated as a teacher, initiating a kind of teaching that can also speak to modern people if we know how to phrase it for the modern world. So I'm sort of involved trying to figure this out, learning something new, even in old age. It's never too late for that. Actually, one therapist and great psychologist from Harvard, a woman called Langer, just wrote about this and said, the, the biggest problem with aging these days is that people believe it is real. I mean, <laughs> that is, i.e., that is, that you should, you know, throw in the towel, give up. Uh, you don't have to be there anymore. She said, do the opposite do the opposite. Pay attention to anything new. Uh, it will be invigorating. And in fact, she tries to suggest 
that meditation could be, take that form too, that could be around, let's say, the changing colors in fall, sudden uh, really strong, really to be concentrated and attentive to the incredible difference there is compared to earlier on in the year. And that anything like that, any kind of willingness to, to see, to, to discover what he says calls variability. Now this is a new thing. I've never heard other meditation teachers speak of variability as something that could be a central theme of, of um, meditation. I, I, other people know better about this and can tell me whether that's possible or not. I, f I felt as an attitude in daily life, it's a good thing. But back to modernity, and this is why I brought this stuff. Um, one is, and I never quite know how to put this together with uh, the meditation practice. I sometimes think I do, sometimes I don't. Uh, let me give you an example from possibly the, the most uh, extraordinary poet in the German language during the past century, who was not German but uh, Austrian Czech, uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. It's on fall day. I'll read a couple of verses in German. It's not our ones encouraged me to cite the original <laughs> language a few, few months ago. So just two strophes in, in German. Herr, es ist Zeit. Der Sommer war sehr groß. Leg deinen Schatten auf die Sonnenuhren und auf den Fluren lass die Winde los. Befiehl den letzten Früchten voll zu sein. Gib ihnen noch zwei südlichere Tage. Dränge sie zur Vollendung hin und jage die letzte Süße in den schweren Wein. Wer jetzt kein Haus hat, baut sich keines mehr. This is, um, I'll translate it now. Lord, it is time. The summer was very good. This is a very famous poem. The summer was very great. Put your shadows on the sundials, and in the fields let the winds blow. Order the last fruit to fill with juice. They should have two more southern days. Let them complete themselves and drive the uh, final sweetness into wine. Whoever does not have a house now will not build one. Who is alone now will, will be alone for long, will wake and read and write long letters, different times. I still did that in my youth. <laughs> my first loves all received long letters. And in, 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 in the alleys, in the uh, Gandes Avenidas, as in Spanish says, Neruda, in the great avenues, the, wind, the, the leaves will be driven back and forth and just walk as restlessly as they do. Now, this is very different from what we usually pursue in meditation. But it is, what Rilke does is he pays an enormous, his meditative attitude is to pay attention to moods. This is not like a description of how you should be in fall and how you should react to the winter coming and so on. It is to say, be open to whatever the mood is that reaches you. This is the mood, uh, a mood, one, that could be others of fall. And he's written others, you know, which are quite different. And this is a poet who is often thought of as having a spiritual dimension. He was very interested in Tolstoy, one of the great Russian novelists, 
who wrote things that some people treat almost as if akin to some forms of Buddhism, and uh, certainly outside Christianity. So I thought this is a very modern to, to be attentive to the subjective. Is it compatible with the practice of meditation? I think it is. But, you know, that's kind of a question, and I cannot answer it by myself, or I can answer it for myself, but uh, not for everyone else. Another example is something very different. This comes from Spanish. Uh, I've spent much time in Latin America and worked for some years in Chile and Mexico. I mean, not, not for years, but a few months per year. And uh, the, the great, another very great poet, Pablo Neruda, who is possibly uh, the most widely read poet in the world during the past century. There's a very simple book. It's, it came out after his death called Maremoto, which is to say um, er, Seaquake, uh, sea Seaquake. And here, and with beautiful drawings by a Swedish uh, artist who, who she made woodcuts. And this is the poem. Yo encontré en Isla Negra un día un sol acostado en la marena, un sol centrífugo y central, cubierto de dedos de oro y ventosas como alfileres. Recogí el sol enarenado y levantándolo a la luz, lo comparé con el del cielo. No se miraron ni se vieron. The poem is from his, where he, his house was very famous, a kind of center, pilgrimage for Chilean center of pilgrimage after the dictatorship. Isla Negra, the black island, because it has black volcanic rock. And there, what he speaks about is there is, he finds, it is a sunny day, in the, in the sand on the beach, he finds a starfish. And this starfish is described as a, a sun full of sand and uh, lifting, the, uh, reflecting the light. And then he said, I compared it to the sun in the heaven. And then comes the punchline. They didn't see each other, nor they didn't look at each other, nor did they see each other. This is modern. This is to say, oneness, when you think of the concept we often use, is not that easy. One is, is, there is division first. There is the strange, the sun and the starfish, which seems to look at the sun, are not at all connected. The universe is without limits. There is no connection between things in a, any obvious way. There is and there isn't. So this poem makes so very uh, dramatically clear the two, the starfish, which you could see as having the shape of the sun with some imagination, uh, that it is not. It is totally, it has its own separate existence. So this is sort of what I'm struggling with. In a way, in the Western tradition, and uh, many, many great writers have written about this. Goethe, for example, kind of praised by, in my country, Twip forever, is uh, the great poets spoke of the great miracle of human individuality. If you live in traditions and historical contexts in which the development of all talents, and that is the development toward a strong sense of one's own individuality, is a central theme, how does this 
put to, fit together with the interest that we have also in the oneness of, in, in the old vocabulary of the West creation or the oneness of nature and of, of life and so on. It looks to me as if one cannot make a decision for one side or the other. We have to find a way to put them together. And especially now where uh, you know, things are getting very messy. Uh, and we're facing something which I thought, as someone who had seen the Second World War, I thought never again would anything like that happen. I am not sure it will not. So we have to be on our guard. Or as the Buddha, the beautiful phrase of uh, things, what is it, things go Uh, go astray? No, it's not like that. Uh, I forgot. It's a famous, it's a famous line. I have it somewhere. You've, I'll find it another time. I can't find it now. But it's uh, uh, be on your guard. It's something that tells us be be on your guard. Uh, things are uh, falling apart. Something like that. But that which is unusual. I never expect uh, the Buddha to say something like that. But it's 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 you know a, a shock, um, a shocking phrase. A kind of has a, a, a puts you on notice that, that things can come apart. Well, I shouldn't have concluded it with that. But <laughs> this is as far as I can go. I have a lot more modernity and so on. But I, after three, four attempts during the week, I thought I still don't know how to do this. So I still don't know how to do a Dharma talk.